Hi, I'm American Birding Association President Jeffrey Gordon, and I'm asking that you support the ABA's Young Birder programs today by going to aba.org gift and donating to our nesting season appeal. At the ABA, we are very proud of our track record of mentoring and supporting the birding, ornithology, and bird conservation leaders of the future through our Young Birder camps, our Young Birder of the Year contest, and our numerous online resources. We need your help to keep those programs the best they can be. The nesting season is a brief but critical time in birds' lives. Getting the nestlings off to a good start means everything to the future. Our nesting season appeal is the same. Please go to aba.org gift right now and make an investment in the future of birds and of birding. And if you'd prefer to donate by phone, just call us at 800-850-2473. Thank you. And thanks for listening to the American Birding Podcast. This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Adventures, specializing in top quality bird watching tours with experienced professional guides to over a hundred destinations around the world. The American Birding Association is proud to join Rock Jumper to offer an ABA tour to Tanzania in 2018. Join us for hundreds of birds, iconic mammals, and amazing culture and scenery. For more information, see rockjumper.com or events.aba.org. Welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and this is an episode all about Hawaii. So I guess an aloha is probably appropriate here. As, as most of our listeners likely know, the ABA membership voted to include Hawaii in the ABA area last year. It was the final resolution to a question that has vexed the organization since, well, since the ABA was founded, to be honest. The omission of Hawaii way back when had a lot to do with the fact that Hawaii was considered to be too far out of the way for birders to easily visit. And uh, this is not really the case anymore. Uh, Hawaii's not that hard to get to, especially from the West Coast. It's not appreciably more expensive than the far-flung parts of Alaska. And it has a lot of amazing birds. You know, the Galapagos gets a lot of press regarding the finches and how they're great examples of divergent evolution on islands. That is thanks largely to some uh, dude named Darwin who spent some time there and, and wrote a book. Uh, but for my money, Hawaii is so much better for showing the crazy extremes that natural selection can produce in isolation. And in the current ornithological landscape, there is only a shadow of what it used to be. Uh, but it's still spectacular. And from an aesthetic point of view, uh, you know, I got to think Hawaii comes out way ahead. Uh, Globicos finches are, are pretty dingy, to be honest. Anyway, the decision to add Hawaii mid-year last year caused some confusion with our big-year birders, three of whom traveled over there in the later part of the year. The confusion stems from the fact that birds are not countable on big years until they are on the ABA checklist, and, and the native Hawaiian birds will be officially added later this year. They were not eligible for last year, but there are a handful of birds that are already on the ABA checklist that are much easier to find on the islands uh, than on the North American mainland. And these are mostly pelagic species that nest out there like red-tailed tropic bird, Hawaiian petrel, bulwars petrel, things that turn up in the ABA area before we added Hawaii from time to time. 
So the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee made a decision last month to allow those birds to be counted on the official big year tallies. So that means that the totals of John Weigel, Laura Keene, and Olaf Danielson will be augmented a little bit, uh, but, but they will be reporting by how much later in the year. Uh, so that's some relevant Hawaii-related news to get us started. Uh, we'll be talking Hawaii in this entire episode, starting with a little primer on Hawaiian bird names and pronunciation from Hawaii birder Lance Tanino. And that will be followed by a conversation with the new president of the American Bird Conservancy, Mike Parr, about conservation of Hawaiian birds and how birders will help accomplish some of those conservation goals. All that after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the last part of May. It's the time of year when rarity eyes turn towards western Alaska and a strong pattern of westerly winds over the last week to week and a half have deposited a bunch of mid-level rarities on the Bering Sea Islands and the Aleutians. Nothing world-breaking, but some really great diversity of East Asian shorebirds and passerines, including lesser sand plovers, common green shank, a couple gray wagtails, a gray-streaked flycatcher on St. George, eyebrowed thrushes, olive-backed pipit, and many, many hawfinches. This is prime time for Asian spring overshoots, and we will probably be checking in with Western Alaska for the next month or so. It sounds like conditions are very good up there right now, so best of luck to all the birders manning those outposts on Attic, Gamble, and the Privilofs. It's also peak time for birding in the Gulf Stream out of Hatteras, North Carolina, and so far pelagics there have found European storm petrel and Fea's petrel on consecutive days early in their spring blitz. We have one first record to report this time around, a real shocker in the form of a little bunting in Cochise County, Arizona. This East Asian emberzid was a real surprise in a place most known for its Latin American vagrants. A second record for New Jersey and a neat story concerning a rehabbed bird made good. A lesser nighthawk was picked up by a rehabber in Somerset County and released a week later. The bird has since taken up residence at a nearby nature park where it has been actively hawking insects unrestrained and regaining normal activities. That last bit is important for you listeners at dusk for several days now. This is only a small part of the rarity landscape for the period. For all the latest news about rare birds across the ABA area, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. And for up-to-the-minute updates and discussions about current rare birds, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. Before we get started talking about Hawaii bird conservation, I thought it might be a good idea to get a little more comfortable with Hawaiian bird names. I'm here with Hawaii birder Lance Tanino. He's a bird guide in Hawaii and one of our regional editors for the ABA's North American Birds Journal. Thanks for joining me, Lance. Thanks for having me. So Hawaii is unique for a lot of reasons. Not only are many of the land birds found nowhere else, but Hawaiian culture, the Hawaiian language, they can all feel a little bit foreign to those of us on the North American mainland, particularly since so many of the native Hawaiian birds are known by their local names, which, I'll be honest, can be a little bit of a handful. I think one of the things that trips people up is the okina, the little apostrophe that is used often in the Hawaiian language. So when we are looking at the names of these birds and we come across an okina, what do we need to do? As far as I understand it, the okina with that backwards apostrophe in front of a name, layman purposes, um, you don't need to worry about it. You just need to use your okinas when they are within a word. So, for example, um, uh, for the word Oahu, 
which is our fourth largest main island. It's spelled O-A-H-U, and the proper way to spell it is O with the Okina, and then an A-H-U. So that's sort of like a, um, a pause. It's actually pronounced O-A-H-U. And so the Okina is just used to um, put a little pause there for, for the pronunciation. Okay, so let's go right into some of these bird names. Okay. Uh, let's start with one of the common ones. What is sometimes known in English as scarlet honeycreeper, it's one of the, the more familiar Hawaiian honeycreepers. The okina is there between the two eyes, so it would be i'iwi. Am I, am I kidding that right? Yeah, so the common name of that bird is the Hawaiian word. It is i'iwi. So the eyes are, per, the eyes are pronounced like an e sound, and the e's are pronounced like a. So, so, so for that particular bird, it's pronounced i'iwi. E-E-V, all right. With the W, with the W sounding like a V sound. Yeah, like V, yeah. Um, that's what's always confused me. I, I never knew if it was E-E-V or E-E-V, but it's E-E-V. Right. Okay, all right, let's go for a, a little tougher one. Uh, what about the, uh, I'm going to say it's scientific name, Hemignathus wilsoni. It's uh, Achiapolaau. Am I doing that correctly? Yes, that's, 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 that's good. Yeah, so it's pronounced akia polaau. Akia polaau. All right. So if you notice it, it has at least two okinas in the yeah. word. Yeah, at least two okinas. Yeah, one one right at the beginning, and the second one in that the string of vowels at the end there. Yeah, so it's just pronounced akia polaau. Akia polaau. So there's a little pause between the two a's. And and for local local birders here, rather than saying the whole name, a lot of people just shorten it um, with a nickname for it, and they just call it the aki. Aki. Uh, that's easier. Yeah. Okay, so two that I always get mixed up are the Akikiki and the, uh, I think I'm doing this one right, the Akekee. Yes, very good. Yeah, and then and then there's a third one. The ruddy turnstone is Akekeke. Akekeke, without the, uh, without the Okina. Yeah, so those, those, those three, I can understand you getting um, how, how people can get confused with that. So that brings me to uh, another question. Hawaii is sort of famous for all these exotic birds from all over the world that have been introduced there. Uh, have any of those introduced species picked up Hawaiian names? Um, let's see. The first one that popped into my head is for the Indian peafowl. The Indian peafowl is an introduced bird from Asia, and you, know, you see it commonly in botanical gardens or parks, or they're kind of um, just decorative at birds to have at parks and things. But back during the royal royal um, family period, Princess Kayulani, her favorite bird supposedly was the, the peacock. And so there actually is a Hawaiian name for it, and it's pikake. Pikake. That's close. Yeah, so P-I-K-A-K-E. They just, they just Hawaiianized the English name. Right, right. And it's also, it's also the name of a fragrant flower that you see in Hawaii that's also not native, but... um. So peacocky. So many of the bird names in Hawaii are, are really descriptive. Are there any that you find especially fun to say or evocative? One of my favorite birds in Hawaii, with I, I think, is one of the really cool Hawaiian names. Is for our winter resident, the sanderling. The sanderling's Hawaiian name is Hunakai. Hunakai. H-U-N-A-K-A-I, and it means seafoam. Oh, that's neat. That's like one of those bird names that it has the perfect name and meaning for it because that's the sandaling who you always see on the beach 
running away and always in and amongst the seafoam on the beach. That's great. I want to thank you, Lance, for taking a bit of your time to help us better understand some of these Hawaiian names so that we, we might be more prepared when we start seeing a Koei Koei and Apapani and whatnot on the ABA checklist. So mahalo. Mahalo and aloha. Happy birding. My guest, Mike Parr, is the new incoming president of the American Bird Conservancy. They're based in Washington, D.C., and they are one of the predominant bird conservation organizations in the Americas. One of their major conservation priorities has been the protection of Hawaiian native birds. Listeners likely know that the ABA membership voted to include Hawaii in the ABA area starting this year, partly in the hopes that uh, ABA birders will become more aware of the threats to these birds. And and those issues are what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Welcome, Mike, and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Nate. Glad to be here. Uh, Hawaii is is often described as the bird extinction capital of the world, and the, the islands have seen a great many extinctions in recent decades. And the situation is, is quite dire for a number of species. What is the current status of some of the Hawaiian native birds taken as a whole? Yeah, um, so that's true. It's often given the, the title, the extinct bird extinction capital of the world, and to a certain degree that's warranted. On the other hand, I think that tends to oversimplify a very much more complex situation. And there are certainly some Hawaiian birds that aren't on the verge of extinction today and, and may well never be. Um, but there are some others that are, are truly in, in dire straits at the moment. And it tends to break down by island. And, and as you know, the, the, the islands have kind of migrated northwest from the hotspot where the, the big island sits at the moment and slowly eroded over time. So um, as you get out as far as Kauai, um, there's been substantial erosion there, and the island is not as high as the big island. And so that leads to a problem that mosquitoes are able to reach uh, up to almost everywhere on the island of Kauai, carrying avian malaria and avian pox. And so the Kauai endemics are probably the ones that are in the greatest trouble right now, the Akakiki and the Akake'e both very similar sounding names, but rather different honey creepers are really in serious decline. And the kuaiohi or small kuai thrush, as it's sometimes known, it's really a solitaire, uh, is very rare, but you know, that's been, it's been doing reasonably well. It's been the subject of a somewhat successful reintroduction program. And there's, there's a few hundred individuals that appear to be more or less stable, maybe slightly declining. Uh, and then there's a couple of other species there, um, the Aniao, which is kind of reminiscent a little bit of a yellow warbler, to me at least, and the Kauai Amakihi, which is also declining fairly drastically. So Kauai is really the, the hotspot or the bird extinction capital of the world. The other islands, less so. Um, Hawaii, the big island, you know, has got two very large volcanoes, Mauna Kea, Mauna Loa, which get up to about 12,000 feet. And so the slopes of those volcanoes are well above the mosquito zone. And so some of the the native birds on the big island are actually doing pretty well in appropriate habitats. And then on on Maui, it's a sort of intermediate story. And even on Oahu at lower altitudes, there are some birds that are doing reasonably well. The um, Oahu Amakihi, for example, has adapted somewhat to, to introduce trees. And they seem to be, you know, they seem to be hanging on there reasonably. Apapani is a sort of more widespread species, which is on several islands, and they're also on Oahu and, and doing okay. 
So it, it's sort of a mixed bag. And I think that to say it's the bird extinction capital of the world, it, it might tend to make people think, well, this is not worth investing any conservation effort in because everything's going extinct. But it, it's vastly more complex than that. And we're having quite a bit of success with a number of the species. But again, Kauai is really, it is the epicenter of the big problem right now. And so the main focus there will be really trying to figure out what to do about the mosquito issue. Is there any sense that these birds are, are seeing any sort of um, immunity as they, are they evolving an, an immunity to this, to this disease? There seems to be some evidence of that taking place uh, on the big island with the um, Hawaii Amakihi. And so there was some research done that showed that they appeared to be returning to areas where they'd previously been extirpated on the big island. And the inference from that is that they've developed some resistance to the malaria. So yes, I, I think that's likely. Uh, and I think over time, you know, it, that will probably be the case. It's just a question of whether those Kauai endemics with this tiny populations can hang on during the intervening period. And we can't really take the chance that they will be able to. So we're going to need to try and figure out how to deal with that. What kind of projects has ABC been involved in that have seen positive outcomes for any of these threatened birds in Hawaii? Uh, we're doing quite a lot of different things. Um, you know, these are islands that mostly the threats are invasive species. All, almost all of them are. I mean, there's been clearance of, of habitat in the lowlands, which caused the extinction of some of the earlier bird extinctions that, that disappeared. But for the birds that are in the highland forest, you're dealing with invasive species primarily. So it's predation by rats, predation by cats, and the, the malaria. And we're focused on trying to figure out what to do about those threats. So I'm just going to start with the outer islands, because I haven't talked much about that yet. But the, the Northwestern islands have got a few endemic species. There's an acrocephalus warbler, the millibird, um, which used to be on Laysan Island and was extirpated from Laysan. Laysan's had a series of introductions of rabbits and other things, but the, they've gone now and the habitat's improved. Um, so we were involved in translocating, working with the Fish and Wildlife Service with support from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, a population of millibirds from Nihoa to Laysan. Uh, to an area that they previously occupied but had been extirpated from. And the birds on Laysan have actually done really, really well. The population, I think we translocated about 50 individuals, and the population's up to 100, and they seem to be doing really well. So that was one successful project, which was just saw an obvious opportunity. The habitat they had recovered, it was time to give the millibirds a chance to get back to an area they'd previously been in. On these, on these islands, you know, people talk about the idea of eradicating predators from islands, but that's usually on much smaller islands that don't have people living on them, which makes it very much more complicated. But what you can do is you can create small islands within larger islands by fencing. You, you can do a variety of different types of fence, so, and they become you know, increasingly more complex and expensive to deliver. But to a certain degree, you're trying to decide what are you trying to keep out. So if you want to keep out cattle and sheep and goats, that's a little bit easier. And that, you know, could be a way to allow habitat to recover. If you want to keep cats out, and again, that's a little bit more expensive and complex. If you want to keep everything out, uh, rats, mice, cats, the whole lot, it becomes very expensive and complicated. And you can typically only do those fences in relatively small areas. But those fences are appropriate for birds that nest in colonies. 
such as uh, Hawaiian petrels and Neil shearwaters. Yeah, the pelagic seabirds. Yeah. Exactly, because you can, you know, you can create create a fenced area. Although it's expensive, you can get a lot of birds inside that fenced area doing quite well. It, it's hard to do that for native forest birds over large areas because they're not colonial. Um, but you can do it for, for seabirds. So we've been working with again with the Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, and some of the partner groups, uh, the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Program and University of Hawaii uh, to work on projects to help Hawaiian petrel and newell shearwater. We've created a everything-proof fence, essentially, uh, at Kilauea National Wildlife Refuge, and we're translocating Hawaiian petrels and newell shearwaters from burrows and areas where they're vulnerable to predation by cats and rats inside the fenced area. So the, the chicks have flown down in helicopters from the upper areas before they emerge from the burrows, because they, they tend to imprint on the burrow area right as they emerge and in the days afterwards. So the hope is that once they um, emerge from the artificial burrows, they'll imprint on that area and return to nest inside the fence instead of re returning to nest in areas on the upper slopes where there are cats and rats and uh, they're, uh, they're vulnerable to that predation. You know, it, it's, it's a good project, it, but it's going to take us a couple of years to see our first cohorts return and of course we've got our fingers crossed that that's going to happen yeah they've done similar sorts of stuff with that with like bermuda petrel and seen you know a great deal of success on those sorts of things so uh hopefully we'll see that with uh, the hawaiian petrels as well yeah exactly there's room to believe that pterodromas will do that because that's something that has happened before so we think there's a good likelihood of that in terms of of the other species i mean on Kauai, the really rare birds were involved in uh, working with San Diego Zoo to help a captive breeding program. We're taking uh, akikiki, some akikiki eggs to raise in captivity to try and get a insurance population. And so that, that's, that's ongoing. The, the critical issue there is how to solve the mosquito problem. And there are a range of technologies which are being considered to address that from what they call sterile male, which is sort of the, the least controversial and invasive in which they irradiate male mosquitoes to make them sterile and release them. The next one is a biological control with a, um, a bacteria called Wabachia, which is present in a lot of insects, but uh, it can affect their reproductive capacity. And so by releasing mosquitoes that are infected with Wolbachia, uh, that could be a biological control. And it, so then as you, as you progress, you get into genetic controls. And some, some of them are more controversial than others. So they start with a, a sort of similar sterile male technique, which has already been used in Brazil and the Cayman Islands and some other places, over Zika in particular. Um, but it's not, it's not been used in the United States yet. Um, but essentially, they splice a gene into the male mosquito, which causes offspring that don't progress past the larval stage due to an overproduction of a protein. So it's, it's, a, it's a gene manipulation that can't continue in the population. It's self-limiting. And then beyond that, um, there's a thing called gene drive, which is a way of splicing genes into the population that could be self-advancing um, in the population, which, of course, is more controversial and has not, has not been used yet, and it's something that's been discussed. Um, we don't support any particular technique. We're involved in discussions with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about which of these might be appropriate, but it's very much a local issue and a local decision because of the controversy. 
but I, I see that the technologies are advancing to the point where some of these might be technically feasible. Then the question is whether they are, you know, appropriate from a, a political point of view and from the point of view of the communities living in the areas where these would be used. And that's something that needs to be discussed much more. But we're getting to the point where it's technologically more feasible, but we still have to work through some of the other associated issues. Are you getting a lot of buy-in from uh, local Hawaiian communities on protection of of their native birds? Um, yes, absolutely. And the state's very involved in it. Um, we just met with Senator Brian Schatz the other day and his staff. I and mean, one of the things that they're very focused on is the rapid ohia death, um, which is certainly a huge potential additional problem for Hawaiian birds. The native tree, yeah. Yeah, we're working with a lot of local partners, and so I mentioned the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Program, but we're also working on Maui with the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Program on creating habitat for a second population for Maui parapel. We're, we're planting and restoring habitat inside a fenced area where we're hoping we will be able to translocate some parapels within the next few years to create a sort of second insurance population on Maui away from the main area on uh, towards the summit of Haleakala. So that's a project that's ongoing. We're quite involved in that and making good progress again with support from National Fish and Wildlife Foundation primarily. On the Big Island, we've been working especially on conservation of the pilula, which has been declining somewhat. That's a big kind of grosbeak-like honey creeper, which is on the dry, dry side uh, and it uses mamani forest. It feeds on the mamani pods. There's actually been a significant drought in that area for the last few years, which has been impacting the habitat. Um, but we're, we're doing a lot of reforestation with Mamani. Um, we're doing a lot of predator control. And we just built the Palilla Discovery Trail, which for birders is great. And it helps to raise awareness of the plight of the Palilla. I was there back in uh, late last summer, and it's, uh, it's a really nice trail. You can see not only the Palilla, but there's the dry slope Elapio there, which is a really cool looking bird. It's uh, you know, similar to other alpayos, but it's got like a really frosty kind of pattern on the head. It's it's really kind of a distinctive alpayo. So that's a fun bird to see there. And there's quite a few Hawaiian Makihis in that area too. So it's really a good place to go birding. And it's a beautiful beautiful scene from there too. Yeah, that that sort of brings me to to my my last question, the sort of the million dollar question. Uh, there have been you know concerns, legitimate ones, I think, about whether the ability to count these birds, whether including Hawaii in the ABA area, will really contribute to these conservation initiatives, or whether the possible attention from birders will be on the whole you know potentially bad for Hawaiian birds. Drawing on your work, ABC's work on these birds, what is your opinion of these concerns? Do you think opening Hawaii to ABA listers will be a good thing for these conservation efforts? I would say definitely. It's actually something that I've supported and ABC supported. So, what you know, one of the problems I think we've perennial problems with Hawaiian birds is that they are not well known on the mainland. So, raising the profile of Hawaiian birds and also carrying the message that it's not a you know a, a completely hopeless situation by any means at all. In fact, you know a lot of the birds are doing quite well and will respond well to conservation. That's very important because we do need more federal funding. We need more funding in general, but we're certainly looking to get increased federal support to get some of these programs really ramped up and scaled up. And I think drawing more attention to Hawaiian birds will be good. I think um, what I'm looking forward to in particular is seeing Hawaiian birds included in the first major field guides, which I hope will 
will happen as a result of ABA's move that here. That would be great, yeah. And I think that would then help us go to the next level. In terms of, of any negative impacts from birders, I'm not really seeing that. Most, you know, the biosecurity controls are already in place, and you'll see as you travel around in Hawaii, there's lots of information on that. And of course, I think birders would be very sensitive to being careful about carrying something like a Ohia death between islands, but they have a program for that, and you can avoid that. But of course, there's thousands and thousands of other people already traveling between those islands. So the the additional impact from birders going there who might not have otherwise gone, I think, will be relatively inconsequential compared to the benefits that we could get from raising the profile of Hawaiian birds and, and also bringing some additional tourism to the islands around nature and the environment instead of necessarily around beach going and, and golf and some of the other things. Nothing wrong with those, but it's nice to add that component because then that brings some tax income from nature and adds a, an in, additional incentive for people to um, to think about protecting the birds and their habitats. That's great. Well, thanks. My, my guest, Mike Parr, is the new president of the American Bird Conservancy. You can get more information on what ABC does in Hawaii and elsewhere in the Americas at abcbirds.org. Thanks, Mike, for joining me. Thank you, Nate. Really appreciate it. I'm so delighted that ABA are including Hawaiian birds, and uh, hopefully you can continue to get out this message that Hawaiian bird conservation it definitely has a lot of hope, and that if, if folks want to get out there, it's really fun birding, and there's lots of really cool, interesting birds to see, and I'd recommend it very highly. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and you can join the thousands of birders who help to support our mission to inspire all people to enjoy and protect wild birds, and who help us to provide leadership for birders who want to increase their knowledge, skills, and enjoyment of birding. We welcome all birders as members, and you can join at aba.org join. And to sweeten the deal, those who join, renew an existing membership, or gift a membership before June 30th, 2017 are entered in a drawing to win a pair of Leica Trinivit HD binoculars, so you definitely want to get in on that. A special shout out to Brooke Widmar from Rogersville, Missouri for joining the ABA and noting this podcast as a reason. Welcome to the ABA, Brooke, and thank you so much for your support. President of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band, The Hangabouts, does the music. Thanks to Samson Technologies, makers of professional audio equipment for supplying gear used in this podcast. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the Alameda Ballet Academy, which offers high-quality ballet instruction to school children in Central California. We are not often mistaken for one another, at least not after that terribly confusing but ornithologically accurate production of Swan Lake. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.